Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals. With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, how are we all doing today? Welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner and today on the show, Cord Jefferson is here, writer and director of the fantastic American Fiction. American Fiction is kind of two films at once. On one hand, it's a farcical comedy takedown of media industry gatekeepers who only want one type of storytelling from black artists. On the other, it's a grounded drama that underlines the richness possible when storytellers of color are allowed to operate outside of the boxes they're often put into. Adapted from a 2001 novel called Erasure by Percival Everett, it tells the tale of Monk, a frustrated academic played by Jeffrey Wright, who becomes an accidental literary sensation when a manuscript he writes as a total joke, perpetuating black stereotypes, somehow becomes a bestseller. What's really singular about American fiction, though, is how there is sensitivity beneath the scathing satire of that setup. It's a film that reels you in with its funny premise, then proceeds to move you to tears with its elegant portrait of a man as he searches for meaning in grief and growing older. In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, Cord, whose past writing credits include work on Succession, The Good Place, and Damon Lindelof's Watchmen, tells me about the strange overlaps between his life and the story told in the novel. We get into why the fiction of the film's title in fact refers to race as a social construct in America. You'll hear why the movie abandoned elements from the novel, including an appearance by Adolf Hitler and a storyline in which a major character is murdered by an anti-abortion protester. 
We also discuss, hot on the heels of last week's Script Apart episode dedicated to the holdovers, what it is that is so dramatically interesting about so-called old men at the end of their rope, as Cord calls them. Characters like Monk, who are so full of resentment, bitterness, and lament for a life unlived. Listen out also for what Cord has to say about the film's meta ending and the symbolism behind the enigmatic image that closes the movie, which I found to be especially fascinating. A massive thanks to Cord for being a brilliant guest, and a huge thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters, without whom this show would simply not be possible. If you're not yet a member of that community but would like to be, head to patreon.com forward slash script apart, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can get ad-free episodes, the chance to ask your questions to upcoming guests, and all sorts of other great perks. That address again, in case you're interested, it's patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, that is all the admin out of the way, let's jump in. This is the wonderful Cord Jefferson discussing the first draft secrets of American fiction. Thanks everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced as ever by Camille Domecq. Cord, great to meet you. Thanks for coming on Script Apart. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure, man. Loved this film. It is a film that kind of feels like uh, you've been on a course towards making for the best part of a decade. Yeah. Um, So a good place to begin, I suppose, is with a piece called The Racism Beat, which uh, was an article you published in, in June 2014, back in your journalism days. There are moments in American fiction within the opening pages of the screenplay chord when Monk is kind of sighing about how they want me to write about a cop killing some teenager or a single mum in Dorchester raising five kids. Those moments, those lines, they feel kind of born of the same frustration. So take me back to that piece in 2014 and how, in in some ways, that was a first draft of this incredible film. Toward the end of my journalism career, I'd reached this point when it felt like on a weekly basis, somebody was coming to me and saying, do you want to write about this unarmed black teenager being killed by the police? Do you want to write about this unarmed black teenager being killed by the police? Do you want to write about this person saying something racist about Barack Obama? And it felt like, oh, A, it's sort of spiritually degrading to just be constantly sort of like swimming in that muck and 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 feeling like that's, that's the best thing that you have to offer. But B, it just felt like it started to feel like, what can I say about this that I haven't already said about this? This, what can I, what can I write about this that I didn't write when this happened last week or the week before that? What can I write about this that people haven't been writing for centuries? Right, that sort of uh, about these very same issues. And so it felt like I, I'd reached this, I'd reached this wall when I didn't, when I didn't, wasn't really passionate about the work that I was doing anymore. And so when I started working in film and television, I was thrilled because it felt like finally. I'm not beholden to any reality. We can write about anything that we want. We can write about any kind of character we want, any kind of black person any, doing anything we want. And it wasn't long before people were coming to me and saying, do you want to write this movie about a black teenager being killed by the police? you want to write about this movie about a drug dealer? you want to write this movie about uh, uh, a gang member in the inner city? And it felt like, oh, even here, even in the world of fiction and fantasy, there's still an incredibly rigid limitation as to what people think black life looks like. There's still this, um, I call it a poverty of imagination, um, about what black stories are, or what about, about what black writers can and should do. 
And um, yeah, that that was that was sort of a rude awakening to to the world of film and television that I, I was expecting something different. And so, uh, you know, three months before I found this novel that I adapted, Erasure, I received uh, a note from a from a, an executive about a script that I'd written. In the note, the note was that I, I needed to make a character in the script blacker. They said, and and so I said, and so I said, you know that that note came through an emissary, and I told the emissary, I will I will indulge that note if the person who gave it to you sits across from me and tells me what it means to be blacker. Tell me how to make a character blacker, and I'll and I'll talk with them about that. And of course, that note went away because I'm sure that they knew that they could set themselves up for a huge lawsuit if they were to go through that conversation. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, but, but yeah, that is, that is the reality of, 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 uh, of the world that I was in. There is just this, even, you know, like I said, this was, I found this book in 2020. And so this wasn't, you know, 50 years ago that this stuff was happening. This was, this was three years ago, this stuff was happening. Um, and so it was, uh, to me, um, when I when I found Erasure and read that these were the themes in the book, it just felt like, oh, this is just n- no no book I'd ever read, no piece of art I'd ever encountered spoke to me the way that this book spoke to me. And seemingly that wasn't just because it was articulating ideas around race. Um, that there was also kind of a personal overlap. Like um, from from what I'm aware, like in in real life. You had to move back in with your mum when she fell ill, and that there are other examples of of ways in which your story had some overlap with with monks in yeah. in the novel and of course in the film. Seeing so much of yourself politically and personally in in the story, was it pretty immediate? The sense of I have got to talk to Percival, I've got to adapt the story. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I would say within. 50 pages, I had texted my manager and said, I think I found uh, the first movie that I want to write. I'd, this, I'd never written a movie before this one. Um, and then, you know, within 100 pages, I started reading the novel in Jeffrey Wright's voice. That's how early <laughs> I started thinking of Jeffrey Ford. He just popped into my head. And by the end of the book, I felt that um, – I knew that I felt so close to the story and I, I felt so close to these characters. And, and as I said, it just felt like I was reading about myself in some ways uh, that I knew that if I were to just write the script and then give it away to a different director, it would feel like I was like giving, giving away a limb. Like that's how, that's how, that's how, because I knew that anything that I would write would be in, incredibly personal and that I I couldn't bear the thought of sending it into somebody and them saying like, let's see what Spike Lee's doing. Thanks for this. You know, I, I just, it would feel, um, yeah, it would feel like I was giving away a child. And so, and so I, I knew that, that I, I had the, it's what gave me, that's what gave me the courage. The fear of that is what gave me the courage to say like, actually, I know I've never directed anything before, but I think I want to try to direct this. Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't the first time that someone had come to Percival about adapting Erasure, and he had always turned these offers down. Yeah, I'm curious if he told you what wasn't right about those earlier pitches, because, well, my best guess would be that um, there is a great balance in the novel that also exists in um, American fiction between the kind of very hooky premise and this kind of like lovely domestic story about Monk's family life. And... I can imagine other filmmakers maybe wanting to lean into the hooky part more and turning Erasure into more of a straightforward zany comedy. Was that the case? Why, why hadn't it moved before? 
I don't know. The, the, the Percival has only the only thing that he's told me is that uh, the people who came to him before didn't understand the spirit of the novel. That's all he said. And he said, and I asked him what was different about me, and he said, he said it was clear to me that you understood the spirit of the novel. So the uh, and what I think that he may have meant by that is, I think you're exactly right. There, there were three tenets that I felt like these are what I need to achieve if I'm going to to maintain the spirit of what Percival is trying to do. The first was it needed to be funny. I felt like uh, that was the book is very funny, and I felt like everything that Percival writes has a real wry sense of humor about it. Um, the second was that I needed to – the book is very metatextual, so I knew that I wanted to sort of maintain some of that meta quality of it. And then the last is that uh, the the book isn't didactic, never force feeds you sort of morality. So I couldn't make a movie that felt like it was spoon feeding you lessons about what you're supposed to think and not think. Um, and so th those to me were just the three qualities that I felt like – I don't need to hew so closely to the narrative necessarily that the story is giving us, but I do need to hew closely to the feeling and emotion that the story is giving us. That was a lesson that I learned from Watchmen. I, the first ever adaptation that I worked on was Watchmen for HBO. And one of the lessons that I took away from that, from Damon Lindelof, who show ran that and who created that show, uh, was that, you know, we had this huge blue sky in front of us in which, you know, we were working with brand new characters, a brand new city, sort of, you know, decades into the future from from when the original the original comic book ended. And and on the one hand, that's exciting. It's exciting to sort of have the world in front of you and just say is, anything is anything is up for grabs. But then that can also be terrifying. Any writer, I think, will understand that sort of looking at a blank page is exciting because you can do anything, but that can also be paralyzing because you can do anything. And so it's yeah. like, where do I even begin? And so the parameters that that Damon put on Watchmen was he said, he said, you can do anything as long as it feels Watchmen, as long as it feels like the essence of what the original comic book was trying to do. And you, you know the emotions that it gives you and sort of the, the, um, the, uh, the sort of psychological areas that it goes to. And so as long as you sort of stay within those lines that this feels Watchmen, then um, that that can that can be a good pitch. And so it's a little abstract, but but it's helpful. It's helpful in thinking about these things. And so I took that lesson to to this adaptation and said, as long as it feels like the spirit of what Percival is trying to accomplish, I think that, that can go in. And so you know, a lot of the book is the book is very different from the film. It's it's I changed a lot in the movie, um, but hopefully I didn't do it in a way that you know. Percival's now seen the film several times. He and I have become pretty good friends, and so um, you know, Percival Percival has has told me that the thing that he really likes about it is that it it sort of is a piece of art unto itself. He said it's clear that you used my book as sort of like a launch pad for for your film, but but it's a, it sort of like stands on its own two feet. That's the. Do you know who Boris Vian is? No, I don't think so. Boris Vian is, is was this. Uh, he was this write, French writer who wrote um, this novel under a pen name called "I Spit on Your Graves" in sort of the fifties, I believe, fifties or sixties France. And um, somebody adapted the book, and the opening night, he went to the premiere. And about ten minutes into the film, he stood up and started screaming at the at the screen as to how much he hated the movie, and then he died of a heart attack right there. 
and he's 39 years old. <laughs> this is, which is like the greatest dramatic French thing to do. It's just to hate it so much that you die in the cinema. Um, and so to me, that was like, well, I, 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 that to me is the worst worst possible, worst case scenario of what could happen when you adapt a novel uh, is that Percival's going to walk in and see it and die. Uh, fortunately, he did not. Fortunately, he's seen it several times now and has not died. And so um, I feel like, you know, the that has been the that has been sort of like to me one of the the greatest um the greatest sort of responses is is people who really love the novel like Percival um have come out saying, you know, that's everybody's greatest fear is that they're going to walk out and say like they well the book is so much better than the movie. Um and maybe some people are saying that but but I've also encountered a lot of people who have read the book, who have studied the book. I had a I showed it at a college not too long ago and a um one of the people in the audience got up to ask a question and, and and the first thing out of her mouth was, I've been teaching this book for 20 years. And I was like, oh, great. This could go horribly wrong for me right now. Um, and she said, I've been teaching this book for 20 years. And I think that I was really um, skeptical that anybody could adapt the novel. And she said, I think that you adapted it really well. And so that has – obviously, I want everybody to like the movie. But but people who really love the, really love the novel and have done scholarship about the novel – um, the fact that they are they they have been into it is, it feels to me that 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 suggests that that I I did what I set out to do, which was maintain the spirit of it while also changing it to make it cinematic in a movie. So it sounds like um, yeah, that was your north star. The when you, when making the changes you did from the novel, you were always just um, wanting to pass that threshold of uh, it, it. Does it feel? Does it feel like erasure? Um, how did you begin to map out like the changes that you were going to make to the novel that you just alluded to? That there are some some differences. Um, you know, for example, I think Monk's sister in the book is she's killed by an abortion protester. Yeah, as I recall. yeah. His yeah. sister, his sister is an abortion doctor, and she's murdered by an anti-abortion activist who storms into the clinic and kills her and several of the other people in the clinic. So, in terms of those kind of things that you you elected to change, mm -hmm. was there kind of what what was the rationale? How did you work out what you were going to be able to port over from the book and what maybe you needed to make some changes to? Well, the book's quite a bit darker than the film. I yeah. think it's sort of like the most obvious thing, right? And the book is a little bit more, you know, the book. Uh, there's like these incredible imagined conversations between historical artists and there's imagined conversations with Hitler and there's a sort of like this incredible dream sequence. There's a lot of flashbacks. Um, so there, there was, you know, there was stuff that I felt like this is unadaptable. This would not sort of work in a, in a movie. Uh, but then there was other stuff that I really wanted to include, but we are, are hampered by our sort of financial constraints and, and time constraints and stuff. And so um, the way that I technically went about sort of figuring out how to do it was I uh, went through and mapped out – this is not true. I, I don't want to – stolen valor. <laughs> I had my assistant go through and she read the book as I was reading the book and I said, I said as you read, just write um, a brief summary in prose of what everything that happens in the book. Just sort of just – just uh, condense it to scene by scene, here's what happens. And so we condensed this, you know, 300 and some page novel into I think 27 or 28 pages. And then from that, um, from that abbreviated version, 
I just started going through and making checks next to like, okay, we definitely need this. We definitely need this. We definitely need this. We don't need this. We need this, but we need to change how this happens, like the sister's death, right? So, um, and then once I omitted everything that I felt like needed to be omitted or changed, then from there it was about sort of like putting a puzzle together. It's like, well, let's move this up here and move this down here. And this is, this sort of is, is in the wrong sequence. And then once I had that, then it was like, well, what do I need to do to fill in the holes now? What so now that we're sort of like have the scenes that need to be maintained from the book, what do I? What are the scenes that I need for the movie for the narrative to make sense? And that was sort of the technical, just structure of it, and sort of how I how I mapped out what I was going to do. But then the decisions for why was, um, you know, I think that I wanted this to be a movie that felt like it was inviting to a lot of different kinds of people. And, you know, I think that in a, a you know, a movie in which uh, the sister is murdered by an anti-abortion activist comes a much different movie, particularly sort of like in the, with the tenor of politics in America right now. You yeah. know, it's, and it's not something that you can just gloss over. You can't say like, sister was murdered. Now we're moving on to the rest of the narrative. You sort of like need to continue that throughout the course of the film. You need to talk about the the perpetrator of the crime. You need to talk about the trial. You need to talk about police. You need to talk about the downfall from, I mean, sort of like, so it just feels like there's a lot more time spent on this than I necessarily wanted in the movie. Another, another very different aspect, um, a, a, a change in the, in the film is, is that, you know, his father's a philander, um, but in the book, his dad didn't just cheat. His dad had been harboring the secret family in a different state, um, that Monk had never met, that his, that Monk and his siblings never knew about. And so Monk travels to meet this half-sister that he never knew he had. She's deeply resentful of the fact that their father was never around. And so it's a sort of like very, very grim scene and sort of like a grim tangent to, to go on. Um, that again, it's, it's, it's great. I really, I, it's great in the novel, but I just knew that it wouldn't be right for the movie that, that I was making. And so a lot of it was just about finding levity and buoyancy and sort of like trying to Trying to make it a little bit lighter than the than the than the novel itself. Um, trying to sort of figure out what you know. I, there was a lot of flashbacks, for instance, in the novel that I wanted to include. Um, so the original script had about four or five flashbacks that I felt would be helpful, especially in learning about the father and sort of like meeting the who who looms large in the in the film. But you actually never meet him because he's dead by the time the film begins. That's right. Yeah. And so I was like, well, what? Let's meet him in flashbacks, and then. We didn't have flashback money. Flashbacks, <laughs> flashbacks are expensive because you need to hire whole new actors. You need to get period costumes. So flashbacks become a whole thing. And so we didn't have flashback money. But then I realized, you know, well, maybe we don't need the flashbacks. Maybe there's a way to flesh out who this father was in sort of present day, in present day um, discussions and dialogue. And I feel like we were actually able to do that pretty effectively. Um, it's And... And it's not so, you know, obviously there would have been great stuff in the flashbacks, but it, I don't think that it sort of ruined the, the movie by any means or sort of ruined the understanding of who this father was by any means. So a lot of it was just practical concerns as well. Like what can we afford to do? What's, what's, the, what's the most economical way to tell this story um, with our limited budget and our limited time? So uh, a lot of that is just, you know, these are the decisions that you make you know, this is this is why they say you need to kill your darlings, right? It's sort of like really going through and separating what you need from what you want, 
And that's what that's what we did. Is 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 I went through and f- separated what I needed from what I wanted, and and um, also separated what I felt was great in the novel erasure, but would not be great in the movie American fiction. Hey everyone, this is Al. Just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week. I know this is a podcast about first drafts, but guys, we have got to talk about Final Draft, the world's best-selling screenwriting software. Simply put, it's the easiest way of actualizing that exciting idea you have for a new screenplay. Final Draft 13 just dropped, and take it from me, it's by far the most customizable version of the software yet, full of easy-to-use tools so that you can get more done with your writing sessions. With industry-renowned features like the Final Draft Beatboard, Outline Editor, and Navigator function at your fingertips, you're going to find yourself charging towards your storytelling goals more efficiently than ever before. It's the first-choice tool of professional screenwriters everywhere for good reason. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart your 2024 writing journey today by visiting finaldraft.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Let me confess something to you guys. When it comes to caffeine, I'm going to throw my hands up and say I'm an absolute addict. For years, I've wanted to reduce my coffee consumption so I can sleep better and feel less jittery. But coffee has always felt kind of vital to my writing process, to the point where I've worried that my productivity would drop off without it. Then I discovered Magic Mind. It's a delicious daily green shot full of all sorts of great organic ingredients that help you get into your flow state without caffeine shakes and sleepless nights. It contains a compound called L-theanine that reduces your body's stress levels and an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri that turbocharges your working memory. Try it today and start crushing your goals for 2024 by visiting magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart, where you can get 30 days for free when you take out a three-month subscription. Use the code scriptapart at checkout, where you can also take advantage of their exclusive January offers. That address again is magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You had to be ruthless. Um, and speaking of ruthlessness, a different type of ruthless, um, there was a previous film called Erasure, um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And I'm aware that the kind of the, the decision to call this film American fiction, it, the main reason was you didn't want to confuse things with that with that 90s Arnie movie. <laughs> um, talk to me, though, about how you arrived at that that title American fiction, because I know for a moment there you had drafts titled the Western Canon. I'm curious, like um, specifically about those words, American fiction, because the word American in this context, I think it kind of stops the film being mistaken for a story about one problem localized to the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like you want to acknowledge that there's what the film represents is a wider problem, a wider thing that's going on in America and the West. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we swear? We absolutely can swear. Okay. So, so the original title of the script was "fuck." That was, and, and as you, if you've seen the film, you know why. Uh, and so, you know, I initially wrote that as a gimmick. Uh, there's a lot of scripts to read for these people, and so I thought, well, "fuck" by Cord Jefferson might get this kick to the top of the pile at least, and people will read the first few pages. 
And uh, it eventually, you know, it started out as a gimmick, but then when we started shooting the film, everything was called, everything, we, we had fuck on the clapper, all the rap gifts for the cast and crew said fuck on them. <laughs> it was, uh, it, was, it started out as this joke that just gained momentum. <laughs> Even when we were first cutting the movie, the first... The first title page said fuck, you know, that was, it was the title cards huge on the screen, fuck. And uh, I sort of really was like, no, this is it. This is, we're going to call it fuck. And then, and then one day I was actually here in London um, and I got a call from one of the producers and they said, we really need to figure out what the new title of the movie is going to be. And I said, well, <laughs> what's wrong with fuck? You know, it's called, the, I think fuck's the, fuck's the title. And he said, he said, I can give you dozens of reasons why we can't call it fuck. <laughs> He said, but the most practical consideration is that when you Google fuck movie, ours is not going to come up. He said, it's going to be a lot of movies that come up before ours. <laughs> movies that we don't want to be associated with. And so, and so that to me was like the real sort of, sort of like, I, that was the real consideration. I said, okay, that's, that's reasonable. And so then it was, it was a, this pursuit of, of a new title, as you said, and the, the Western Canon was one of them. Like a three-legged dog was one of them at one point. There was sort of, a lot of pitches. There was probably came up with twenty to twenty-five titles that we were all batting around, and then one day I started thinking. I, w I went home and I started thinking about like, okay, we were getting really close to locking the film, and we really had to find the title for the movie. And so I went home and I started thinking, and so uh, started thinking about you know literary puns and sort of like uh, uh, sort of suggestions as to as to more layered than fuck, obviously, and more layered than obviously different from erasure. And I read this poem called, I started reading poetry. And I thought maybe I like the idea of, you know, poetry sometimes gets you out of your head. It's not sort of like about the narrative or anything. It's just about language and sort of what, how language works. And so I, I read this poem called Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes. Um, and I thought, okay, America, American. That's, that's a good history of, of movies with America or American in the title, right? American beauty, American movie. American History X, there's just sort of like a lot of lineage there. And, and so I felt like, okay, American is good. And then American fiction is a good pun, right? It's sort of a, it's a bookstore pun, publishing pun. But then beneath that, as you, as you suggested, you know, to me, race is this really, race is this subject that's really sort of ripe for comedy and humor. And the reason I think that is because, uh, when you talk to the vast majority of scientists, the vast majority of scientists will tell you that there is no basis for race in biology. That in, that in fact, that you know the differences in our skin color or the shape of our eyes are actually meaningless when sort of like it, it comes down to to our humanity, and that's sort of like we're actually far similar than we are different. Um, but that being said. We have structured our societies and our nations and our institutions in a way that suggests race is real, right? And so, so racism is real. And so on the one hand, race is not real and insignificant. And on the other hand, at the same time, it's also very real and incredibly important, sometimes fatally so, right? And so to me, the inherent tension between those two poles makes this a subject that's very, very funny because it's, it's absurd. Like there's an inherent absurdity there that this thing that we think is real and important is actually not real and silly. Um, and so to me, that's sort of like the fiction that I was, that's sort of like the really, sort of like been the two layers beneath sort of like the, the bookstore pun is this idea that what we are talking about here is just a, an incredible fiction. And it's, and it's, and in fact, 
what Monk is doing in the film is creating this fictitious character and, and Stagar Lee and sort of like this fictitious backstory for this character in an effort to in an effort to play into the fiction that is race in America. And that's not to say that racism doesn't exist all around the world, but you know, every every society has its own flavor of racism, you know, racism in England isn't the same as it is in America. And so I was getting at this thing that I thought, you know, as you said, is sort of specific in America and also maybe a little bit to the West. And that to me was the sort of underlying um, suggestion of the title is that sort of this is a particularly American fiction. There's a lot of fiction going on in the movie. You know, it's I think the movie is one of the main themes of the film is um, people's desire to be free to be who they are and the crazy things that people will do when they don't feel the freedom to be who they are. Um, and yeah, that, that, that all of the fictions that Cliff has put up and that Monk has put up and sort of like all the lies that their father told. There's just, it's a, it's a movie that's full of, full of American fictions. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Monk there, who we should talk about in detail. It has been a great movie year for kind of cantankerous middle-aged men yeah, whose absolutely. intellect has, has kind of made them an island. Yeah, and um, absolutely. There's, there's kind of a debate, I suppose, an ambiguity over whether, you know, that their intellect, as they say, has is the thing that's kind of contributed to making them alienated or whether their deep immersion in academia is because they were already a little adrift and they've <laughs> leaned into it. Shout out the holdovers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What do you think it is that's so interesting about characters like Monk and about, you know, Paul Giamatti's character in The Holdovers in terms of what those types of characters offer an audience in terms of emotions that we don't often get to see on screen? And I ask because, you know, there's jealousy in Monk at his, you know, at his life, the way it's panned out. There's bitterness at how his potential has gone unfilled. Um, There's resentment at the systems, like the racist systems that have contributed to that unfulfilled potential. Those are all kind of uncomfortable emotions and behaviors to sit in, but they're so human and they're so real. That to me is so much more interesting than if if Monk was an upcoming writer rather than older in his life. Yeah. Same goes for, for Paul Giamatti's character in The Holdovers. Can you talk to me about like, yeah, what it was about this character and, and particularly like the leaning into those types of emotions, those types of behaviors that... um was so attractive. You could have made the decision to make him younger. You didn't. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think that it's, when I look at those people, those kinds of characters, I've always looked at them as kind of aspirationally. You know, I think that I'm, I think that I would say the the most flamboyant, the most flamboyant of the lovable grumps in, is to me, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David. (laughs) Right. I think that he is sort of like really the apex of sort of like this kind of character. Um, who's just like, I'm angry all the time. I don't like that. I don't like the things that you're doing. I'm going to tell you directly that I don't like the things that you're doing. And for me, I've always, I always aspire to that. You know, I think that I'm, I'm, uh, I've always said that my favorite genre of, of anything is sad man at the end of his rope. (laughs) That's, that's truly like my favorite. That is, and I would say that American fiction is, is within that, within that oeuvre, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, and I just feel like there are, you know, the holdover, Sad Man at the End of His Rope, uh, Sideways, a movie that was very influential for me, Sad Man at the End of His Rope. Uh, I th- just think that there's a lot of 
a lot of mo- Falling Down is this movie from the 90s with Michael Douglas. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I loved that when I was a kid. Sad Man at the End of His Rope. There's, there's just a lot of, um, and I think that what I feel when I watch these people is that I am a, I am in many ways a sad man at the end of his rope, but I, but I think that I'm very tightly wound and I never really allow myself to lean into those inclinations, right? I never allow myself to, you know, if somebody cuts in front of me in line, I'm the kind of guy who just stands there and says like, well, like I cut in front of me, but I'm certainly not going to address it because it would be weird to address it. And I'm not the kind of person who who takes on confrontation that way. You're British at heart. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. And I just I, that that to me is is uh, always been the way that I go about things. I know I don't like to confront people. I don't like to cause problems. I don't like to um, raise my voice or sort of I don't I just. I'm like, let's just move along and we'll, we'll all forget about this in a couple hours anyway. Um, and so to me, watching characters who don't do that, who excel in sort of like being combative, who sort of, you know, the minute you see Monk on screen, um, he's arguing. He's arguing with his students. He's arguing with his colleagues. He's arguing with his family. He's arguing with his girlfriend. He's just constant. He's just a, a pugnacious man. And um, there's part of me that's like, I wish... I wish I could do this. I really, really wish that I could. I, I had the, I think, um, the gall to try this one day, but I don't. And so I think that there is there is part of me that really, when I watch those kinds of things, I think it's like the same way that people might watch, um, you know, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of TV shows these days that are kind of like wealth porn, like Succession or like- Yeah, which you, uh, of course, worked on. Yeah, I worked on Succession, yeah, or like White Lotus. You know, these, these there's there's a lot of just kind of, aspirational viewing in that way of like, oh my God, look at these lavish vacation, these lavish homes. And so I think in the same way that people watch that, that's how I watch these kind of like sad men at the end of the rope. I'm just kind of like, man, I wish, I wish I had the guts to do that. I don't have the guts to do it, but I, but I envy you. And I think that, but I think that there's something else that, that Paul Giamatti does so well, um, that, that Jeffrey does really well in this movie is I think that the lovable grump in a lesser actor's hands is dangerous because if you err too far to the side of grump, you can lose the audience. Yeah. You know, the audience says like, well, I, I hate this guy. He's an asshole. He's rude to everybody. He's constantly arguing. Why am I rooting for him? And that that is sort of a, a danger with that kind of character and writing toward that. And the thing that I think Jeffrey does so well is that, and something that I never had to direct him on set for was that Jeffrey, I had this therapist one time. This is very American of me to talk about therapy. I'm sorry, but I'll do it. Um, I had this. I had this therapist one time who told me that the uh, that anger is a secondary emotion. She said that underneath anger, always, if you if you explore it, is uh, either uh, fear or pain, and that's sort of like uh, particularly for men, the way that we. Uh, negotiate those emotions is by just like beating our chest and yelling and throwing things. And like, that's because it's too vulnerable to say I'm afraid, or it's too vulnerable to say you hurt my feelings. And so we act out in sort of like angry ways to, to mask that stuff. And I think that what Jeffrey does beautifully in the film is he allows, and what keeps you on his side, one of the things that keeps you on his side is you see the frustration and the pain under all that rage. You know, he sort of plays it so well that you're never just like, oh, this guy's just a jerk to be a jerk. You see that he's what he's what he's doing is is lashing out because he's 
He's sad because his father's dead. He's sad because his sister's dead. He's sad because his work isn't as popular as he think it should be. Um, he's sad because he's alienated himself from the, his family who, who is alive. He's just he's frustrated for and, and hurt for a lot of different reasons. And I think that that's what keeps you on his side is that Jeffrey plays it beautifully. And you see you see underneath underneath what uh, the sort of like the the veneer of rage that he has. And you actually see the the sort of like sad, frightened guy that's underneath all of that. Yeah. I want to ask about two scenes in which um, that sadness and rage is is explored in interesting ways. If if we had all the time in the world, there are a million scenes from this. <laughs> the, the funeral scene on oh, the beach, thanks. for example, the, the Idris Elba line in that. We could de dedicate an entire podcast <laughs> <Absolutely>. to that. <laughs> but in the interest of time, one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is Monk's run-in with the character Sintara, who um, is a fascinating character because she sees things from... A perspective of giving the market what what it wants. She doesn't really carry any guilt, whereas the the shame involved in Monk in the persona that he puts on in pursuit of success. Um, there's a suspicion in Monk that he's kind of contributing to a harmful perception of black life in America. That is not something that she is wrestling with. You mentioned earlier about how um, you know it was important to you that the film isn't kind of lecturing, that it's not moralistic and it's not didactic. The scene where the two of them kind of finally have it out and there is that battle of perspectives, the film doesn't insist upon one of those perspectives being right. And I'm fascinated by that. Can, can you talk to me about the construction of that scene and why it was so important that, you know, Sintara wasn't kind of like a punching bag for a particular viewpoint in terms of this is not how we should be uh, portraying black life in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was reading the novel Erasure, I was really looking forward to the scene in which Monk and Sintara would meet and sort of debate their ideological differences about art. And that scene never came. Uh, and so when I sat down as I said earlier, to sort of construct what sort of and puzzle out the what the movie would look like, I knew that I had to include that scene because I'd been craving it so much. And when I wrote it, I wrote it with the intention to make sure that Centara wasn't seen as a villain because I never wanted – one of the things I never wanted the film to do was police blackness. And another thing that I never wanted the film to do was, was police black art. Never wanted to lecture, as you said, or finger wag and say, like, you guys are doing it wrong and this is the right way to do it. Um, and so when I sat down to write that scene, I knew – I was like, this has to be a draw. There can't be a winner. Most, most arguments in movies should be draws, you know, in my, in my opinion. I think that that's, that's what makes for interesting drama and tension and sort of allows people to think for themselves. I didn't want it to feel – um, it's not an, it's not an op-ed essay, right? It's not a persuasive essay. Um, and so when I sat down to write it, I knew what we had to do was make sure that Centauri was smart and thoughtful and had actually considered these kinds of things and had actually thought about the work that she was putting into the world and put, as she said, she, she did real interviews. She did research about this book and, um, you know, Monk's immediate rejection of it is arrogant and presumptuous and maybe a little self-loathing even, you know? And I think that uh, 
one of the things that that uh, some people catch and others don't is Monk even admits, Monk says, like, I, I actually haven't read your book. I've read excerpts. And, you know, which I think is a very classic sort of like arrogant dude thing to do, which is like, I haven't read it, but I've, I've you know, I've read a couple lines here and there and it seems bad. Um, and so I wanted to get at Monk's arrogance in that scene. I wanted to get at Monk's... Um, sort of knee-jerk reaction in that scene. I wanted to get at the idea that maybe Monk's a little self-loathing in that scene. And I also wanted to, the thing that I like about that scene is, is that as you watch the tables turn on Monk and sort of like Monk is all of a sudden on the back foot and Monk is rarely on the back foot, uh, the tables may have turned a little bit on the audience as well. That all of a sudden the audience who, who up until that point had maybe been led to believe that Monk is this crusading righteous hero um, and that Centaura is this villain. Um, all of a sudden, the audience is forced to go. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe my perception of 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 these people's dynamic and their roles is is wrong. That sort of there is some thought behind this. And so, to me, uh, that scene is is a linchpin in the film to to ensure that it's not a film that feels like it's hectoring certain kinds of art or saying that like this kind of this is the bad way to be black and this is the good way to be black. I never wanted the movie to do that because I don't believe that there is a good way to be black or a bad way to be black. And so it was important to avoid that. And I feel like that scene really sort of hopefully helps drive that point home. Yeah. As a scene, it's a wonderful stepping stone towards this really exciting conclusion and this this conclusion that very much um achieves what you wanted to set out in terms of the meta aspect of the film that you discussed earlier. Can you tell me about like um, how and when you worked out that like the best way to end this film was to kind of almost show your working out as to uh, how am I going to end this film? Like yeah. it, it's, it's such a brilliantly kind of meta denouement once we get to the awards ceremony. Tell me how it all came about and, and what felt so perfect about it once you landed on that idea. Thanks. Yeah. The, the, so the original... So the ending of the novel is the first ending of the film. Monk walks up to the microphone. Uh, you have no idea what he's going to say, and then the novel's over. And so I felt like it was a great ending for the novel. I felt like it would be an unsatisfying ending for the film. And so the original ending for the film that I wrote in was the second ending of the film and sort of that, that rom-com ending where he goes – over to uh, Coraline's house and he says, I need to apologize. I haven't been myself lately. And even when I was writing it, I felt like this is not, this is not the appropriate conclusion for this movie. It doesn't feel like it's a piece with the rest of the whole. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I just felt like it was like a clever pun, punny way to end yeah, the movie. Yeah. It's like a, I haven't been myself lately. But I felt like this is – you don't want to end on this. And so we were getting really close to shooting. We were about a month out for pre-production. And the producer, one of the producers called me one day and said, you know, you, we really need to figure out what the end of this movie is going to be because we're about to start <laughs> shooting it. And he said, the only piece of advice I will give you is try writing an ending that feels as audacious as the rest of the film. Try writing something that feels like a big swing. And so... I sat down to think about that and woke up the next morning and I'm normally a very, very slow writer, but that ending just kind of poured out of me very quickly. And I think that, um, it felt, A, it felt audacious. It felt like a big swing. It felt like it was meta, like sort of like, the, like I said, like one of the tenets to 
to keep with the with the novel and the spirit of what Percival was trying to do. And then lastly, it just it just felt like it was um it felt like what we were getting at and sort of the, one of the things to go back to the conversation with Centara i think that what Centara was saying glancingly not directly was that it is foolish of monk to get mad at individual artists and i actually think that this applies to every aspect of society it's foolish to get mad at individual. I find it very hard these days to get mad at individual actors, sort of people doing bad things, because the thing that I think it's important to remember is that all of these people sort of at the ground level are operating within a system and operating within institutions and societies that were constructed centuries before any of us were here. And so... I think that what Centara is saying is I'm just playing by the rules of the game as they've been explained to me. And like, I, why are you getting mad at me when I'm just sort of playing by the rules that have been set out for, for this institution that I'm working in? And I think what she's saying glancingly is the more interesting question is why are the people atop these enterprises, atop these institutions, the ones who greenlight movies and TV shows and books – why are they so interested in telling the same stories over and over and over again? That's a far more interesting and complex question that isn't being asked. Don't get mad at other artists for making art within these institutions the way that they want to make the art. Why aren't you getting mad at the people who, is, who are buying the art and funding the art? And so to me, that last scene also sort of gets at that, is that Monk is realizing oh, this is a system, you know? And I think that that to me, when he sort of has that last moment, that eye contact with the, the guy who's, yeah, with yeah. the guy who's playing the slave, Monk's reaction at the beginning of the film to that character would be much different than the Monk we see sort of reacting with, interacting with him at the end of the film. And I think that what Monk is saying with that little nod is, oh, we are in the same struggle. I've realized now that I'm not an island, that I have, I've tried to isolate myself the entire time and I've tried to be on my high horse or in my ivory tower or whatever other metaphor you want to say. Uh, and I've tried to sort of avoid all of this and I'm realizing now that I'm not above this, that he's walking out of a meeting in which he's just made a huge concession in order to get paid for this movie that he wants to make in sort of like having this character die. And as he's come out knowing that he made this concession that he hates, he sees another guy who's out here who just wants to be an actor. And this is the part he's been given because this is the system that we live in and this is the system that he's working in. And the system says, like, you're a slave. And so, like, this is, you know, if you want to be an actor, these are the roles that you have to take. And so, to me, that ending just sort of, like, tied that together, too, and sort of ensured that that, that is what came across, is that, is that, you know, this is an institution and that institutions take time to change and that sort of Monk is finally confronting that reality mm -hmm. and sort of realizing that this guy who's who's playing the slave and him are sort of, you know, they're in the same fight and the sort of like the fight goes on. And so it's a little it's a little bittersweet, but I think that the the sweetness comes from from coming out and seeing his brother there. And that sort of the he's he's, you know, you see that it's a love story and it's not necessarily a romantic love story, but it's a filial love story and sort of like this this 
these these two guys who who had lost their way are finding their way back to each other, and that's sort of like bringing them some peace. So, um, yeah, it's uh, to me that it was one of those things that as soon as I I was finished writing it, it just felt like oh yeah, this is this is the end. You know, it, it, it's, I, I'm deeply insecure. I'm a writer, of course, and so and so the, the, I am very frequently unsure about like I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is right. Uh, about basically everything that I write, but when I wrote that ending, it just felt like no, this is this is what it should have been all along. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting note to um, end the film on because the it feels like an acceptance on Monk's part that this is the institution and you can't, no one man can change it. Yeah. But the film, I think, just to wrap things up, is an important stepping stone in hopefully changing those institutions. Thank you. Some of the conversations around the film seem to seem to suggest. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. That, that there's a. There's a spiritual predecessor to this film called Hollywood Shuffle that mm. came out in 1987 that I really, I loved uh, when I first saw it. I was a kid. It's probably the first time that satire had an effect on me, probably nine or ten. And the more that I got in, interested in filmmaking and art, the more that I started reading about how Hollywood Shuffle was made. And the, and the guy who co-wrote it and directed it and starred in it is a guy named Robert Townsend. And Robert Townsend, to make that film, uh, I think maxed out like 12 or 13 of his credit cards. Um, and they shot it over the course of two years because uh, they would shoot on a Saturday and Sunday and they'd have to return all the camera equipment and then they'd go work and sort of make more money and then they'd, then they'd come back when they had enough money to rent the equipment again and they would shoot again. And so they did that over the course of like a year and a half or two years. And, and the thing that um, I've since talked, Robert and I have become friendly. He saw the film and, and is a, is a big proponent of it. And it's, um, I've been very honored to sort of be in his presence. But the thing that I've learned is that, you know, I'm now here 30 years later um, having walked into a room and asked people to make this movie and they gave me money to make it. And so uh, that is incremental change. You know, I wish that things had changed more. They haven't, unfortunately. A lot of the themes of the movie remain relevant. But things have changed. You know, I'm I'm sort of an an optimist in that, in that there is incremental change going on all the time. And so, um, hopefully, uh, that I, I know that people like Robert Townsend cracked the door open a little bit so that I could sneak in there 30 years later with the, with the movie that I wanted to make. And instead of having to max out my credit cards, I got some people to pay for it. Right. <laughs> and so hopefully if the movie does anything, it is, you know, to your point, maybe it's cracking the door open a little bit more for people behind me who have a story that they want to tell in the year 2024 that isn't being told, but maybe this will allow them to sort of hopefully stand on, stand on the shoulders of this film and, and get something that they want to want to get made the way that I stood on the shoulders of Robert Townsend. I certainly hope so. Cord, this has been such a delight, man. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. It's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Script Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 